So this is Adrian Percy with AgTech360, and today I'm delighted to have Dr. Nick Heyman with me. has a lot of experience in the AgTech world. He's worked in very interesting adjacent sectors. He's worked in what we would describe as the non-ag sector. You know, agrochemical products, as an example, can be used for many different applications in home and garden, on a golf course, uh, vegetative management, this type of thing. But more recently, and uh, this is what I'm really excited to talk to him about. Uh, he's been involved in the public health sector. Today, we're going to explore a little bit about how ag tech can influence public health and particularly vector control. So first of all, Nick, great welcome to you. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks, Adrian. First of all, Nick, I know you've got a, a very storied career where you've worked for you know some of the major crop protection corporations like Bayer, like Rome Palenque, same as me, actually, that uh, you've worked, as I say, in different sectors and looking at different customer bases in that. But more recently, as CEO of the Innovative Vector Control Consortium, you're working on, obviously, vector control, the public health sector, trying to solve for some of the key challenges that we have outside of food security and environmental impact, but things like malaria and Zika and dengue diseases, which are obviously a very, very noble cause and would love to understand a little bit more about that. But can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and perhaps what inspired you to, to get involved in agriculture? And I know you did a PhD at uh, Rothamsted Research, which is a, an amazing uh, research institute in the UK. Yeah, I'm happy to give you a quick update. I mean, in spite of the fact that both of us don't have local accents, we, I've certainly lived and worked most of my last 31 years in the US. In fact, I was only ever worked in Europe for six years before coming to the US and lived much of that here in North Carolina. Yeah, I did uh, my first degree, my bachelor's degree, in, in applied zoology, which was mostly entomology. For that degree, I had to spend six months working in industry, and I went to work for Shell when they had a research centre in the UK working on agricultural entomology and pesticide development. And I had such a great time, I thought this is a good thing to do. So I went on eventually to a PhD. At the end of that, though, I, I quite fancied academia, but ended up in, in with an industry job. And back in the 80s, everybody, if you got a job at all, you were doing rather well. So I, I was very happy to go and work for industry and I, I haven't regretted it. And I think it's having that background in industry, which also allowed me to stay connected with academia that probably set me up for a role of uh, running a what is commonly called a product development partnership. And I can explain a little bit about what that means. Before we get into the IVCC, if it's okay, I mean, I'd, I'd like to explore a little bit more about working in the ag sector and then perhaps moving out of the ag sector into these non-ag applications for ag tech products. And we just describe a little bit about the kind of technologies that you worked on there, because I do think it's a really fascinating adjacent sector to the typical ag uses for these products. Yeah, no, uh, happily. I mean, my first uh, job in industry, which was actually May & Baker, which is a part of Rome Polank, and many people will have forgotten that the, even the name of that company, let alone be able to spell it, was really at the bench. And I happened to start at a time when we were looking at something called chemistry and that chemistry turned into a whole range of insecticides but particularly one called fipronil that turned out started off its life in agriculture but ended up transitioning perhaps you could argue having the most value in the area of non-agricultural uses and also in public health and particularly animal health so i was exposed to agriculture for the first 15 years of my career and then started getting involved in how do you take some of those products 
that are normally used in row crops, etc., or, or in agriculture in general, and apply those, rebuild those for use in other sectors. And sometimes many of those compounds often transition over to be you know, extremely useful chemistry. But it's not the main driver of R&D. The main markets generally are in broad agriculture. And if you can find opportunities for some of these chemistries in public health, you do. And that really was a fantastic setup for me many years later to get offered a job heading up a, a product development partnership that focused on taking some of these chemistries that may have been abandoned for agriculture, maybe abandoned for public health use, and being able to repurpose them, or at least start again with the development of these abandoned chemistries. Some of them not abandoned, but many did not have a broad enough activity to have progressed in agriculture and give a return on investment because of the cost of developing a, a new product that could be then repurposed for a public health use like uh, control of vectors. I'm not sure if people really realize how common that, that is or was at least at one point. I mean, you mentioned a couple of chemistries there and there was uses on crops, typical for a agrochemical at the time, but then that extended, as you said, into animal health, flea and tick control, into homeowner uses like controlling termites, fire ant control, a whole host of, of different applications. And you, of course, see some insecticides which are even used for human control of things like uh, head lice and other things. So, you know, a vast array of technologies that have started off on the ag side and then moved and crept into other areas. Companies have to make difficult decisions with new chemistry. They really don't have a huge amount of time to make the money back, get a full return on investment within the patent life of a compound. So a development decision, which is a very expensive, costly decision and somewhat risky, has to be made on really one or two key markets. The idea is you can get a return there. Then some time and effort will be looked at how do you broaden the use of that chemistry. And sometimes that doesn't happen for many years down the road road with those compounds. Probably not the same with fipronil as one example. I think we recognise the unique properties of that chemistry very early on and we did start to look at how to expand the market and where that chemistry could be useful outside of normal agricultural use. But that's not always the case. Some of the most interesting chemistries have actually cut their teeth in agriculture and then find a very, very good space, an important space elsewhere. Animal health is, is one. And that's exactly what we've been specialising in within IVC which is to come to companies, the big ag companies. We've been talking about whether there's chemistry not been fully utilised that really can be either repurposed or fully developed for these public health uses. So let's talk a little bit about uh, IVCC. Can you tell us a little bit about the organisation, a little bit about how it's funded and what kind of impact it's looking to make? Yes, well, I did know about IVCC when I was working for Bayer because I was within the group that started as a partner with IVCC back in 2008. In fact, Bayer at that time was probably the first company to join up. But I think there was a recognition back in the early 2000s that there was very little chemistry in public health, insecticide chemistry, particularly chemistry that could target mosquitoes. And there was a ramping up of interventions across the world, but particularly in Africa, utilizing chemistries like synthetic pyrethroids. And it was inevitable that at some point this use combined with homeowner use, combined with agricultural use, was probably going to trigger resistance and resistance obviously would reduce the impact of these chemistries. And there was very little else in the pipeline. It was mostly recognised at the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine, actually, who then went to the Gates Foundation and other funders, pointed out the issue that long term, we'd never be able to eradicate malaria or eliminate it if we didn't have the right chemistries. And if resistance predominated, and we lost the use of the tools we had. 
So IVCC started with a $50 million grant over five years from the Gates Foundation, primarily based at the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine. And then gradually, a range of new funders joined a fair bit later. So the UK government, the Swiss government, for example, US government and the Australian government were those that also stepped up to the plate, recognising that malaria was um, one of the most highly impactful diseases worldwide in terms of economic suppression of of countries in terms of deaths. And at that time, 2005, there were still somewhat around um, 800,000 to a million deaths a year, mostly children under the age of five. New tools were going to be needed and that the base or the cornerstone of those tools was going to be effective insecticides that could deal with resistant mosquitoes. Those of us working in agriculture feel we're working towards a noble cause, as I said before, of feeding the world and doing it in a way that's sustainable for the environment. But I think you could argue that your cause is even more noble. Terrible ravages of malaria in many parts of the world are, are very acute. Through this effort that you're making, you know, and funded obviously by some government assistance and foundations like the Gates Foundation, I mean, how do you see to make impact on the ground? How are these technologies that hopefully you'll help develop with these companies, these orphan chemicals, how How will they eventually be rolled out uh, in places that they're needed? They're already starting to be rolled out. Um, maybe Maybe I'll go back a step and explain a little bit about the PDPs, these product development partnerships. IVCC is just one of 12 in public health. They exist kind of recognizing that there needs to be a group that can coordinate activities, including funding, um, bringing innovators together, de-risking innovation with multiple funding, putting business lens to the development of products for public health in a space that really wouldn't normally trigger companies to play a role because it's unlikely over the course of the life of the chemistries that companies would get a return on investment, particularly if you were to develop a novel chemistry. Now, if you repurpose old chemistry, it's perhaps got a higher chance of success. But if you take a novel compound, it could be anywhere from 100 to 200 million to develop that compound. And really those markets in countries that are resource poor and in markets where really philanthropic on government funding to support a large population, there really is not a great reason for companies to be investing in it, apart from they have great chemistry and there's a philanthropic part to what they do. So there are PDPs like IVCC that focus on diseases that really don't or will not give a return on investment. So AIDS would be one, for example, TB. And uh, in the malaria space, there are three PDPs, one dealing with drugs, one dealing with vector control, and that's IVCC. We're, we're kind of alone in that space. And an organization called FIND and others actually dealing with diagnostics. And also a fourth in the malaria space working on vaccines. So the PDP is kind of an established mechanism for bringing together academia, industry, money, and other stakeholders around a particular disease or public health challenge to really solve that, recognizing that the private sector really does not have a major driver to do that. And I think folks are very surprised to know that these types of organisation exist, but they rely heavily on industry, rely heavily on agricultural chemistry, certainly in the case of vector control. And they rely heavily on the sort of skill sets that come from the pharma industry and come from the ag industry, where it's possible to develop a compound and get all the way through the regulatory 
challenges and develop that compound from bench right the way through to delivering it to those most in need. I'm curious, Nick, as we've just gone through a global pandemic where a lot of the entities that you just described have come together yeah. to solve, well, maybe solve is, is going too far right now, but at least made, I would say, some impact and some positive impact on alleviating the suffering caused by corona. I mean, what lessons are there that you've taken away from this period that are relevant to what you're doing perhaps with IVCC? That is a great question. It's also a tough one. I mean, there are some real downsides, obviously. I don't need to explain what the downsides of coronavirus are. I can explain that the that, that lot of funding which we rely on to support the development of these chemistries and interventions, of course, has been rechanneled, rightly so, to deal with the COVID crisis. So it's a constant concern to make sure that these programs are not dropped. Development is very lengthy. It takes 12, 15 years sometimes to get a product to market. You need a long-term vision and a long-term funding to do it. On the other hand, we can see that normally a vaccine would take 10 to 15 years to go from discovery to development. And actually, in this case, it could be done in one and a half years. So I think we know that we can learn that the development process with the right people and and the right will can be accelerated and accelerated without any concerns for reduced safety or reduced efficacy. We know it can be done. I think we've learned a lot about the vulnerability of countries in Asia and Africa. Africa where we work. I think in the early days of COVID, we were very impressed by the resilience of Africa. We work in about 16 different countries and we have field trials in many, millions of dollars worth of field trials. And we were very concerned that these programs would be heavily disturbed. And actually they weren't in the first year, but now you're seeing, and we're all hearing about some of the concerns across Africa, some of the political instability as well, combining with that, that will probably significantly slow down the development of some of these products. If you want another positive, we've also, like many organizations, learned to work in a remote way and be, I wouldn't say equally effective, but certainly none of the programs we have have come grinding to a halt. And uh, I would say in some ways we've become better communicators to make sure our programs are fully supported. And of course, you are working transatlantically with a team in Liverpool and a team, I believe, here in North Carolina. So I guess that's been particularly important for you. Well, we do. We have a team here in the US. I've been based out of Chapel Hill, North Carolina for many, many years, but I've worked the last uh, seven based in Liverpool, flying back home when I can and my family coming over. So I'm not completely abandoned, but I have been back here for a year. We do have folks in Africa. We have somebody in France. We have somebody in India. Yes, we're a very international organization that has learned to operate internationally. And uh, I think actually we were able to hit the ground running when COVID came because because technically, anyway, we were set up to be able to communicate in ways that didn't force us to be face-to-face. Funding, of course, is a concern, although I'm confident we'll find ways to manage this because I think the world in general is united on the fact that we really can eliminate and hopefully eradicate malaria, and it really is a priority disease. And if we can do that, some of the tools and technologies, indoor residual spraying, bed nets, targeted sugar baits, and other ways to control insects are really applicable to managing other diseases. Yeah, so I think you preempted my last question for you, which was really about what are those enabling technologies? 
You've talked a lot about having the right chemistry that can overcome resistance. The mosquitoes have developed to various different chemical entities, but you have to deliver them to the right place at the right time. So is there a lot of work as well that's either going on in IVCC or perhaps in other organizations or startups devoted to that as well? And can you talk a little bit about it? Yeah, I can. In some ways, you could argue that the product development part of what we do is is the most predictable and easiest. We're all used to working with chemistry and we're used to trying to understand biology and also the toxicology of these chemistries and the impact. There's an element of risk. And I mean, we started with 4.5 million compounds from six major companies, many of those archived. And today we're down to five classes of chemistry and about four compounds. And we need three brand new compounds with completely different modes of action, we feel, to produce enough products that can be rotated to make sure we don't have a resistance issue that can take us all the way to eradication. So we've gone from 4.5 million down to a handful. And there's some risk associated with those because until they go through a full toxicology review, we could lose a compound. But I think there are other things that are much harder to deal with. One is um, kind of removing some of the barriers. So the process, and you were talking about this with COVID development, the process is very slow. So how do you speed up the process? How do you get everybody aligned around getting compounds to market as quickly as possible? How do you keep companies like UPL, like Bayer, like others engaged in the process when there's probably not a big return on investment? So we work with Bayer, Mitsui, Syngenta, Sumitomo, a whole list of the major chemical companies. And they've been extremely good partners because they recognize that their chemistry can have impact. There are other things which you can develop chemistry, but chemistry on the shelf is not very useful. So interventions delivered to people that need them is really where you need to be. Generally, new chemistry, new interventions are expensive. So you have to find funding and support, not just to develop the products, but support them in the marketplace for the first few years, because they will be more costly than the chemistry they're replacing. But at the same time, you have to make sure a dollar spent on a new product is going to give you as much or more public health value as one it replaces, because there's a limited amount of funding for this in the global community, in the global funding community. So there's all these things that that have to be done that actually, in some ways, I, I would argue are more complicated than the product development process itself. We work very closely with the Global Fund, with Unitaid and such organizations. We have about 135 million or have done in the last six years uh, in support from the Global Fund and Unitaid and the Gates Foundation, not just to bring the products to market, but really to focus on getting them into the hands of the people that need them at a price or at a cost that can be afforded. It really is a sort of bench to impact story that takes a lot of different stakeholders and a lot of different players. And you mentioned a couple of technologies like, um, you know, bed netting, I guess, which is impregnated with the insecticide or, or baits, which which will attract and kill the mosquitoes. Are there other things that um, you see on the horizon uh, in terms of delivery? There's no question that bed nets have saved a lot of lives. I mean, 78% of the lives saved has been estimated or modelled between 2000 and 2016, somewhere around 70 to 80% of all the lives saved, which is around 6 million, have come from the use of insecticides in bed nets and indoor residual spraying of chemistries like pyrethroids and organophosphate chemistry and other chemistries that are out there today. Fortunately, now we have an armory of IRS products that work very, very well, replace pyrethroids, can be rotated to make sure that we don't have another resistance issue. And now we're working on these new compounds. And perhaps the newest one is a dual active ingredient bed net from BASF called Interceptor G2. And these are starting to replace the failing products that are in the marketplace today. 
But again, if you go out with one or two compounds and they're overused, you're going to lose that efficacy very, very quickly. So you really need, along with the chemistry, to have a a very, very good insecticide resistance plan. That means having chemistries with different modes of action, different mechanisms of action, and also an, an IVM plan. So how do we integrate other tools? How do we integrate vaccines for malaria? How do we integrate with drugs? How do we use diagnostics? How do we use surveillance to make sure that we're targeting the right technology to the right geography uh, at the right level of disease intensity, you might say, and also to the right mosquito species. So it, it is, it's a pretty complex game where modelling is a major component of also what we do in terms of decision making. It's pulling together of multiple disciplines, multiple technologies, really to basically save lives and eradicate malaria. It is possible to eradicate malaria. It's, it's how quickly we can do it. China was certified malaria-free after decades. And we work very closely with China. In fact, we do a lot of research with CDC China, but also with organizations in China who are looking at product development as well. They have some great experience and we're going to learn from that and apply that as many places as we can. So Nick, on that very positive and optimistic note, which um, is great to hear, I want to thank you for your time. I think on behalf of everyone that listens to this, kind of wish you a lot of luck and resilience in tackling such an important issue and big thanks on my side. So thanks a lot. Thanks for the opportunity. And I I would suggest if anybody's interested in learning more, there's Rollback Malaria. They have a great website. There's the WHO uh, has a great website. And IVCC's website, IVCC.com, is also very informative. And Uh, please if you want to learn more I'm also open to being contacted thank you so much Nick thanks Adrian